Today, as in the ancient era, the church is confronted by a host of life stories that contradict and compete with the gospel. The book of Colossians demonstrates the supremacy of Christ in all of life and reminds us that he has secured redemption for creation of which his people are a part. You're listening to a sermon series on the book of Colossians by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. This is his mission, to make people like his son. And that, of course, is why it is our mission as well. We are the body of Christ. We, We are here on earth to represent what Christ is doing still in the world. We have this one mission because Christ has made this his mission. Well, as I have attempted to explain at length in the past, this mission is not relegated simply to people like pastors and missionaries. This is not a mission of the few. This is the mission of all disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the mission that everyone has. I've given you this little saying before, you're not really in the Navy. You're really a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as someone in the Navy. You're not really a housewife. You're really a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a housewife. That's how you should think, because for every single one of us in this room, we are all ministers on this one driving mission of life. Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, in the book I mentioned last week, The Trellis and the Vine, remember the Australian guys I I told you about last time? They say this, quote, at the most basic level, the Bible says that Jesus doesn't have two classes of disciple, those who abandon their lives to his service and those who don't. The call to discipleship is the same for all. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There are not two sorts of disciples, the inner core who really serve Jesus and his gospel and the rest. The Great Commission, in other words, is not just for the 11. It's the basic agenda for all disciples. You hear that? It's the basic agenda for all disciples. They go on to say this, quote, The radicalism of this demand often feels a world away from the ordinariness of our normal Christian habits and customs. We go to church or we sing a few songs try to concentrate on the prayers and hear a sermon. We chat to people afterwards and then go home for a normal week of work or study or whatever it is that we do in time to come again next week. We might read our Bible and pray during the week. We may even attend a small group. But would someone observing from the outside say, look, there is someone who has abandoned his life to Jesus and his mission? I mean, think about that question for a moment. Would the guys on the ship or the ladies in the office or, or the, the neighbors around you whom you talk to on a regular basis, do you think that when they look at your life, they would say, look, there is someone who has abandoned their life to Jesus and his mission? That's a tough question. And I'm afraid that the honest answer for most of us, myself included, is I'm not sure that my neighbors in my neighborhood would look at me and go, oh yeah, Stacy, he's all out for Jesus. They know I'm a pastor. They know what I do. They know that we don't do some things and that we do other things that they don't. But would they really look at me and go, he is on a mission because he belongs to Jesus, even if they didn't like that? Would they really understand it? 
It's a tough question, but it's one I think that every single one of us have to think about. Because ultimately, if we are living our lives for anything other than the fulfillment of Jesus' mission on earth, then we are failing. We are failing as a church, as Christians, as families that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Our larger section of the text that we've been working through now for several, several months, I think it is, has been Colossians 3, 1 to 4, 6. Okay? This is the, the big chunk of this letter. And throughout this section of teaching, I've told you that you could sum up that in all those verses with just two words. You probably know those words now. Normal Christianity. See, normal Christianity isn't what we normally experience. If you ask Paul to define what makes up normal Christianity, what should the normal Christian life look like, he has done that for you here in chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 6. He's been outlining every single piece, and he's broken it into three sections. The first section, 3, 1 to 17, he gave us this overview of normal Christian living. I mean, just on a day-to-day, in-and-out kind of basis, what should you do? What should you not do? Does the Christian life address those kinds of things? Yes, it does. He gave us sins we should avoid, uh, godly traits that we should put on. Here, in a nutshell, just in those 17 verses, is what the normal Christian life should look like day in and day out. In the second section, 318 to 4.1, he talked about normal Christian relationships. Does the gospel really change our marriage? Does the gospel really change how we parent our children? Does it really change our social and economic relationships? Well, yes, it does. Because as you look through those verses, his emphasis on the lordship of Jesus proves that normal Christianity extends even to the in and out workings of our daily relationships and interacting with one another. And here in these final verses, chapter 4, verses 2 and 6, Paul wants to cover one more area of normal Christianity, and that's normal Christian mission, normal Christian ministry. What is it that you, as someone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus, what is it that you should be doing? As believers living in a non-believing world, what do we need to be focusing on? Well, according to Paul here, there's several things we need to do. For example, we need to be constantly in prayer. Why? Because we're going to see today that prayer is the power behind this mission that we're on. Paul, in verse 3, he asks for uh, uh, special prayers for him. Why does he do that? Because we as believers need to partner with one another in the mission that we're on. Not only does he ask him to pray for him, he declares again, he's done this already, what it is that he's ministering there in verses 3 and 4. He's showing them the, the purpose of his mission, what he's trying to accomplish. And then finally, he instructs them on how they should live as they interact with non-believers themselves there in verses 5 and 6. This shows us something about the process of the mission that we're on, how we carry ourselves and what we should be doing. Throughout these verses, you will see what it means to live life in service to Jesus Christ and his mission. At least that's my goal. And so over these next four Sundays, today and the next three... We're going to break this passage down into those four component parts. The power, the the, uh, partnership, the purpose, the process, so that we can get a glimpse of what it will mean for us as disciples to live our lives on the mission that Jesus has for us. Today, let's look at the first of these four, the power of our mission, which is nothing less than mission-focused prayer. Mission-focused prayer. Now, To my knowledge, I've I've never heard that phrase before. So what exactly is mission-focused prayer? 
or maybe perhaps more to the point, what's the difference or is there a difference between mission-focused prayer and just regular old prayer, okay, just normal, average, everyday kind of prayer? Well, the reason I'm asking this is obviously because prayer is the focus of verse 2. In verse 2, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So if prayer is the focus, we need to understand what it is. Without saying this out loud, how would you define prayer? Just if I said, hey, look, you know, Isaac, hey, look, Onique, hey, look, Mark, tell me what prayer is. How would you define it? Most people, or a very common answer that you might get, is that prayer is talking to God. Okay, have you ever heard someone say that, that prayer is just simply talking to God? I'm not against that definition. That's fine. It's certainly true. You know, when you pray, you are clearly talking to God. So in that sense, the definition is fine. I just don't think that that definition is enough. See, if I just want to talk to someone, I could talk to my wife. I could call up one of you. I could talk to someone that I could see versus someone that I've never seen. I could talk to myself. There's so many other things I could do if my only purpose is to simply talk. Yet prayer, I would say, is more than that. I think that that definition of prayer is missing a vital piece of the pie. What I would like to suggest to you this morning is that a much better understanding of prayer is when I define it in light of the mission that God has placed us here on. If I understand it in those terms in light of the gospel, I begin to get a better, more complete understanding of prayer. My life is not my own. I, I said that in my prayer up front. I've made reference to that several times now. Your life is not your own. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been put here on a mission to help redeem a people for God. To help make people like Jesus Christ. And then every aspect of our prayer, if that's true, every aspect of our prayer should be affected by that reality. My praise to God when I pray, it's now centered on the faithfulness of Jesus as he accomplishes his mission in the world. God, I praise you for what you're doing. I praise you because you are drawing people to yourself. I thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your love. See, my praise now to God isn't just the, what can I think of to say nice about God this morning, which is often what our praise and, and prayer is like. What, uh, what should I say, uh, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Uh, that was great of you to do that. That's how prayers tend to start, it seems, at least in my own heart. Whereas in reality, if I understand that God is doing something amazing in this world, and that I get to be a part of that, all of a sudden my praise comes alive. Or, or what about confession? We're, we're supposed to confess our sins, right? But is our confession because we're, we're still trying to do penance to God for our sins because we, we keep failing? No, 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 no. Christ died for all of our sins. When he died on the cross, every single one of our sins were in the future. He's paid for them all. They're all forgiven. So why do we as believers confess then? What is it that we're, we're doing when we say, Lord, I'm so sorry I blew it again yesterday? It's not trying to get him to forgive me and give me grace again. It's realizing that I'm an unworthy servant who failed again in fulfilling the mission the way I was supposed to fulfill it. My thanksgiving to God has changed because it's no longer centered on just the blessings that I notice and appreciate. How often is your prayer filled with thankfulness for the things that you see and like only? Oh, Lord, I got a check in the mail. Thank you for sending me this check. I wasn't. Thank you for my tax return being higher than I expected. Thank you. You, you thank him, which is good, but only for the things that stand out to you, the things that you enjoy. Rather, if I understand that I'm on a mission, 
I begin to get the ability to thank him in every circumstance of life because I recognize that even in the things I don't like, God is still graciously, kindly giving me opportunities to minister in ways perhaps I had never wanted or thought of. I can thank him in any setting now, not just for the things I like. And it changes my requests as well. When I come to God and I ask him for things because I'm no longer approaching him selfishly, seeking personal benefits. Rather, I come to him asking for help in the mission that I'm on. We'll talk more about that one here in just a moment. My point here up front is simply that when we begin to see prayer from, from the focus of mission, from the standpoint of the gospel and what God has placed us here to do, all of our prayers should be mission-focused prayers. There should be no distinction between regular and, and... No, we should always be praying with this mission in mind. Now, I can hear some of you going, Stacy, pause for just a second. I mean, before we go any further, are you saying... I just can't simply talk to God. I can't just simply pour out my heart to him when something's going wrong, when, when I'm struggling with something. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. God, God loves us and he wants us to pour out our needs to him. But all I'm saying is that even in those particular moments, the pouring out of your heart, that talking with God, it should still be mission-focused prayer. Why are you even having a trial in the first place? You ever thought about that? Of course you do. God, why is this happening to me? No, that's not exactly what I mean. But why are you even having a trial in the first place? Is it not because you live in a sinful fallen world, where people do hurtful things, where, where bad things happen and you can't explain, where God has purposely left his children whom he says he loves in the midst of people who hate them. Have you realized all that's true? That even in those moments when you're pouring out your, your heart to God in tears and in anguish, that he has done all of this for a purpose? It's not just to bring you harm. See, even in those moments of trial, even in those moments where you can barely speak the words, your heart is so burdened down, this mission focus doesn't change. It's still true. It's still ultimately the reason why you're coming because God has left you here with something to do. And you know what? Often that has pain attached. That, that has pain attached to it. Jesus didn't accomplish his mission apart from the cross. Remember that. We're no better than him. We should expect that when we happen. The mission hasn't stopped or changed just because things are hard. In everything that happens, God is working out all of those events to complete his mission in your life. He wants you to be like his son as well. So I feel comfortable saying that all prayer is, or at least should be, this kind of mission-focused prayer. Now, having sort of defined that for you, what does it look like? Are there any differences in, in your understanding of prayer as you begin to think about prayer from the, the focus of mission? Well, I think there are. Look at these four characteristics you see in verse 2. Four characteristics of this mission-focused prayer that Paul gives us here. Number one, mission-focused prayer is constant because the demands of the mission are constant. Mission-focused prayer is constant because the demands of the mission are, is constant. Paul says that we should continue steadfastly in prayer. The Greek word here uh, for continue steadfastly is persevere. You need to be persevering 
in prayer. Now, understanding that it's the word persevere adds a little nuance to it. Normally, when we talk about persevering in something, it's because there's some difficulty attached to it. If you have me over for dinner, and you say, look, Stacy, I've put something on the table. I want you to persevere. I want you to eat everything that's there all the way to the end. And then I go sit down, and it's chocolate ice cream on a warm chocolate brownie baptized in, in chocolate fudge. No perseverance needed for me. I will complete that task with joy, okay? Perseverance is normally attached to something kind of a negative or something that's difficult at least. So if in that same scenario I come and I sit down at your table and it's seafood, I'm going to need every single ounce of perseverance that I can muster. I hate seafood. I know that God told us to subdue the fish of the sea even and have dominion over them, but for me that means SeaWorld, not Long John Silver's. I am not... I am not a seafood fan, okay? I, I, I like them in the ocean, in the aquarium, just not on my plate. I, I will need perseverance because now the task you've given to me is a little bit more difficult. Well, it's perseverance in prayer that Paul is commanding us with here. Why exactly does our prayer need to be constant? I mean, why can't I just pray once a day for, for two minutes? Why isn't that sufficient to get me through my day? Well, it's not because we are on a mission and the demands of that mission is constant, are constant. God has not put us here to lie in a bed of roses. He, he has put us here to attack the very gates of hell. We are invading the ruler of this world's territory. That's what's happening right now. The fact that we are meeting here is something that Satan hates. And so if here we are in the midst of something that Satan hates, you know what we need? We need to be constantly in prayer. He didn't place us in the middle of, of butterflies and happy woodland creatures. He, he, he placed us in the midst of a pack of wolves who are here to attack us. We need to pray. This mission isn't fun and games. It's a wartime mission against the ruler of this world who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay, that's the reality of what the Christian life is. And because that is where we're at in this mission, guess what we need to be constantly doing? We need to be constantly persevering in prayer. So first, mission-focused prayer is constant. Second, mission-focused prayer is humble because it recognizes that the mission is too great for us. It recognizes that the mission is just it's too big. And I'm drawing this from the Greek word for prayer that he uses here. There, there are several words for prayer in the New Testament. And, and while this one here does refer to just prayer in general, it often has the meaning of petitionary prayer. Okay, a petition's a request. Okay, so prayer where you're asking God for things. And with that clarification in mind, what Paul is commanding us to do here is to constantly be bringing our needs before God. Why? Well, because like I said, the mission is far too great for us. And the fact that Paul is commanding us to constantly come and bring our needs to God should lead us to humility. It should help us understand a couple of things about ourselves. It should humble us in at least two specific ways. Number one, it should humble us by placing us in a right frame of mind when we pray. How, how many of you parents have encountered a situation similar to this? Your child is attempting to do something. Something that you know they can't do, okay? Maybe it's something just too hard for them, something too high for them to reach, but they're trying to do it. And so you say, hey, look, do you need some help with that? And they say, oh, no, 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 I got it. I'll do it. 
What do you do as a parent at that moment? You've got two different options. You could, number one, say, no, you can't do it. Here, I'm going to take this. Boom, you do it for them, and you're done. That's option one. Or two, you could say, all right, go ahead. Give it a try. Now, if they're going to hurt themselves or hurt someone else or break something, you need to step in. But can I just make a comment to you parents? If possible, let them try it. Give them that moment to sit there and work on it. Obviously, there's some value in, in, in the effort put into it, but there's an even greater benefit, mom and dad, when the child realizes <laughs> they were right, I can't do it. And now they have to humble themselves and come back and say, Mom, Dad, will you do this for me? Will you help me with this? In a similar sense for us, God has given us a mission that is far too large for us. Can, can you save anyone from their sins? It, it's all, maybe you need a better uh, evangelism method. Maybe you just need some more skills and then you can do it. No, that's not it. Or, or maybe you need to offer them some incentives or some rewards and then, then more people will get saved. No, you can't do it at all. You have been given a task that is far larger, that's actually impossible for us to do. We can't perfect anyone in Christ Jesus. We can't save them. We can't stop them from sinning. We can't make them do right. And yet, this is our goal. So what do we do? Well, we fall on our knees. And we petition our God to do through us what we cannot do at all. That, that's mission-focused prayer. That's how it humbles us. My mission humbles me before him. Number two, it should humble us by keeping our focus on genuine needs, not selfish wants. L- listen to these words from James chapter 4. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulteresses. And notice the, the feminine there. You adulteresses. What's the difference between asking for a need and a want, you ask? It's very simple. It's the heart motivation. That's the difference in the two. For for whose mission are you asking for this thing? Okay, well, I'm on my own mission. And my mission in life is to to pay off my house and to fund my retirement and pay for my kids' college and to be able to retire comfortably. Therefore, God, I need a raise. God, I need to win the lottery. God, I need this. I need whatever. You know what you're doing? You're being an adulteress. You're like a woman who goes to her husband and says, Honey, I need $50. And he gives it to you so that you can go buy your illicit lover a present for Valentine's Day. That's exactly what James is saying right there. That, that's, that's hard, isn't it? But that's how our prayers go wrong when we are asking for our own wants. You know, it's not wrong to ask for a raise. I use that example on purpose. You know, you could ask for a raise in a godly way. When you begin basing your request to God on his mission and what he's doing in your life, there's no such thing as a wrong request. Anything is potentially open to you as you seek to accomplish his will. Maybe getting that raise will allow you to minister to more people. Maybe it'll help you as you are zealous for good works, Titus 2, what God has made you for. There's all kinds of ways that can happen. The point of, our, of what uh, we're being told here is that we need to be doing this humbly, understanding that it is only from God that we are given the ability to do anything for him. And can I add just maybe one more comment on this one? You can't mix the missions. You either ask for yours or you ask for God's. And normally this happens with, you know, 
Lord, if you let me win the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, I'll give $5 million to you, and I'll keep forty-five for myself, and we both win. Okay, that's kind of the, the hard approach here, isn't it? As if you can bribe God. So maybe we can both, we can work something out mutually encouraging, Lord. God doesn't need you. Jesus said you either serve God or you serve money. Hate one, love the other. Pick your poison. What you going to do? You, you can't straddle the fence on this one. So when we come in prayer, we need to come with our hearts and minds fully pointed on things above, not on things of the earth. There we saw that in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So in praying this way, it forces us to our knees in humility as we lay our requests before him. Number three, the third characteristic, mission-focused prayer is alert because only God knows what the mission will require of us or when it will be complete. Paul says here we should be watchful in our prayer. And this, this is the word you would use to describe a guard on a wall who's defending a city. You know, he's watching. He's looking to see if the enemy is coming. We still use the word this way, all you guys in the military, you have to stand watch occasionally, or maybe not occasionally, maybe very often, where you have to be there, be alert, just in, just in case something happens, you have to be ready. Well, in a similar sense, when it comes to prayer and the mission that God has placed us on, guess what? You have no idea what's coming next, do you? You don't even know if you're going to make it home from, work, from church today safely. You don't know what tomorrow is going to hold if perhaps you're going to lose your job or get a promotion. You have no clue what's coming up. You may think that that person that you're, that you're trying to help right now overcome sin, you may think, oh, they're doing great. They're saying no. They're, they're, they're following God. And then, wham, tomorrow they fall apart. And you're like, God, why? What? You know what you need to do? You should have been alert. You should have been watchful in prayer because you know that Satan, our enemy, is out there trying to stop this plan that God has. You may be sharing Christ with someone you think, oh, the Lord is he's getting their attention. I think the Spirit's working. He's opening their eyes. And all of a sudden, the person just turns on you completely. And now they hate you and they reject you. Why? Because Satan is the God of this world. He is blinding their eyes to truth. As people who are here on a mission for Christ, we need to be constantly alert, understanding that only God knows that the, the circumstances around us and what it's going to require of us to complete his mission. But not only that, this word is also used in another sense in the New Testament. It's the word used to describe the Christian's attitude toward the return of Jesus. We should be constantly watching and waiting. That doesn't mean we sit at home all day looking at the ceiling like, is it now? Is it now? You know, like that? No, no, no. That's not the point at all. The point here is that we should be living our lives in recognition that Christ can return any moment. That we don't have ten more weeks, three more years. We don't even have one more day guaranteed to us. At any moment, Christ could return and the mission's complete. And you, as a minister, will have to give an account for your service. And so Paul commands us to be alert, watching in our prayers. And then the fourth characteristic, mission-focused prayer should be filled with thanksgiving because the God of the mission will ensure its success. It should be filled with thanksgiving because the God of the mission will ensure its success. He comes back here to one of his most common themes in this letter, thankfulness. Paul talks about thankfulness so much. They should be, our prayers should be constant, humble, alert, and, and thankful. Because in the end, it's up to God. You know what verse of scripture encourages my heart almost more than any other? 
It's Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 18 to Peter when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That, that encourages me more than anything else because you know what? If, if I was the builder of this church, and I don't mean just cornerstone, I mean the church of any, in any sense. If I was the builder of the church, the church would fail tomorrow. No, it would fail today. This would be our last service. We would not come back next week. If its success was up to me, we would be in trouble. But here's the beauty. In this war that we're in, in this mission that we're on, on, I'm not the general. I'm just a private. Just like all of you. We're all on the same mission in the same rank, all following the lead that Christ has setting. We are on a mission and our Lord has promised us that it will succeed. It will. You don't have to wonder. You are on a winning team. That sometimes is said in a trite way, but it is so true. The mission will succeed, and we should be thankful for that. Our prayers should be thankful prayers because God will ensure the mission's success. Finally, how do we pray these mission-focused prayers? I mean, how do you do this? I think this is the question, especially when you're talking about prayer, that people spend the majority of their time on thinking through, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'd like to suggest two changes that you would need to make in order to begin praying mission-focused prayers. First, you need to change your understanding. You need to change your understanding, and it's critical, I think, that you do this first. Too often, as I said, when people talk about prayer, they begin thinking about things like form or posture or wording. Should I, should I kneel? Should I stand? Should I lay flat? Do I say these words? Do I follow the Lord's prayer? Is there a model? Do I have to go in a particular... No, okay. They think about all these things. There's a place for those discussions, but they're not the most important. The most important thing you do is by changing your understanding. First of all, you change your understanding of God. You need to remember who he is. That he's not just some cosmic grandfather who doles out nickels and peppermints to his grandkids when they come around. If that's your understanding of prayer and that's all your prayers ever really amount to, you have too low of a view of our God. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. He spoke the world into existence just as words. You are getting ready to stand in the presence of the Almighty every time you kneel in prayer. You need to understand who he is. Number two, you need to change your understanding of yourself. You're just a creature. You are one of his creations. I love Psalm 103. God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He looks at you. He's like, dust, 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 dirt, dust, dirt. Okay, that's what you are. That's what we are. Though isn't it true that in our own minds, we're like at the top of God's pedestal. We're, we're number one on his list, always in our own minds. Well, God, of course, he, you know, he's, he, I'm, I'm the best thing that he ever made right here. That's why he wants to answer my prayers. That's why he's going to listen to me. No, no, you need, to, you need to raise God up many notches and drop yourself many notches if you're really going to understand your place as you come to him in prayer. Number three, you need to change your understanding of your purpose in life. Why are you here? And I'm not just asking that in the normal philosophical sense of what's the meaning behind life. No. I mean, seriously, why are you here? Why were you born? You didn't have to be born. God could have made you never exist. Of course, you couldn't think of it that way. Why are you in Virginia Beach? Why are you in the Navy? Why do you work at your job? Why are you married to your husband, to your wife? Why do you have the kids that you have? Why do you live in the neighborhood that you live in? Why did these things in life happen to you? Is all of it just chance? 
Or is it possible that maybe God had a plan, a purpose for you to fulfill? Something larger than what you see, something that you need to, to come to grips with so that you can begin doing, I, I would say it's, it's the latter there. It's not just chance. Everything about you, from your existence in this world, all the circumstances of your life, every single thing was planned by God, and you are here for His purpose. Christ died for you, not just to set you free from sin, but to make you His own slave. That's Romans 6. We, we often think of salvation as being freedom from slavery, and it is. If you add the words of sin, from sin, when you are saved, you are freed from the slavery of sin, but you are still a slave. You're just now a slave of God instead. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, And he died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who gave himself for us. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, Look, if anyone wants to come after me, you've got to take up his cross. That's not, you know, to hang it around your neck on a chain, the cross is an instrument of death. You follow Jesus, you're taking a path. You're setting a course for something that is going to ask you for your very life. I don't mean that it's going to be some violent death like Christ, but it is going, it might be, but it's going to take your entire life to follow after Jesus. Discipleship has a cost to it. And it's only then, after you've changed your understanding of who God is and of who you are and of what your purpose on this world is, can you begin to change your actions. See, once you understand those things about why you were redeemed, you know what? It's going to be easy to be constant in prayer. It'll be easy. Because you're going to constantly remember, I'm under attack and I'm here and there's these people. I need to be praying for them. I need God's help. I need to minister to them. I need to make them perfect in Jesus Christ. I need to warn them. I need to teach them. You're going to see your life and all the, the other lives you touch in a completely different manner. It's going to overwhelm you. You're going to have to be constantly in prayer. Once you understand these things, it'll be easy to petition God's help from a sincere heart. You won't have to be making 47 lists of who can I pray for next? Who can I pray for today? You're going to be overwhelmed by the number of things to pray for, and you will have to be constantly bringing before them, before the Lord. It will be easy to be watchful because you'll begin seeing all of life as the spiritual battle that it really is. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. You'll see it in that sense, and so you're always going to be alert, and in all of that, it will become easy to be thankful to God because in the midst of the hardest trials, the only thing you'll have left to stand on is the unchanging rock that is our God. That's it. Life will shift. Troubles will come. This will happen. That will happen. But you will find your God to be your only source of strength. And your heart will just naturally pour out thankfulness to him. When it comes to prayer, as I said, people tend to get all worried about the words they say or how they sound. I'm not very eloquent. I'm not good praying in front of other people. And listen, listen, I understand those fears, okay? I, I really do. I'm not trying to belittle anyone when I say that. But I just would encourage you to understand that prayer isn't half the mystery that we tend to make it. It just, it just isn't. If you struggle with those kinds of fears, then let me encourage you with the words of Jesus and the greatest commandment which is, as you know, 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is less concerned with the words of your lips than he is with the heart behind them. You may not be the most eloquent person. When you pray, your, your words may all go together. Your heart is what's most important to him. And as you begin to see prayer as a natural response to God as you serve him in his mission, I think you'll come to understand that more and more. It's been said that prayer is like a telephone to heaven. And if you, know, you think back to that definition that you know, prayer is simply talking to God, well, that analogy works well then. Okay? If that's the, the definition of prayer that's just talking to God, well, sure, then prayer is like a telephone. But as I've tried to point out this morning, I, I don't think that that's a complete enough definition. If we understand prayer to be the source of power as we are serving our God on his mission, then I see prayer less like a telephone and more like a battlefield radio where I'm able to call in for help, report intelligence, seek, ask for an airstrike, help defeat the enemy. See, when I begin to understand prayer in the terms of the mission that God has placed me on, it's no longer just a spiritual discipline that I force myself to do daily because that's what normal Christians do, which is really no service to God at all. It's not that. Now it becomes my lifeline. Now prayer becomes my source of strength. Now prayer becomes a joy. It becomes a necessity. It becomes my source of life. If I don't have that link, if I don't have the battlefield radio, <laughs> I'm in enemy territory with an overwhelming mission that I can never fulfill. No, no. You need to have a right understanding of prayer so that as you begin seeing it in light of God's mission that he has sent you on, it won't be that struggle that it's been for you in the past. It will become a joy and a lifeline for you in all circumstances. Dear God, we, we are so prone to just looking at something like prayer as being a duty that we have to check off our list in order to be good in your eyes. But in reality, Lord, you, you intended it to be so much more than that. You intended it to be a source of communion and fellowship with you. You intended it to be a source of power for us. Lord, we recognize this morning that we as believers are on a mission. That every single one of us in here who, who name the name of Jesus, we are disciples who have been given a ministry to make all men perfect in Jesus Christ. <laughs> we can't do that, though. It's impossible for us to complete. And yet you haven't left us here with no power You've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, and you've given us prayer. And through that, through us, you are now working in the world to draw a people to, your, to yourself, to redeem them from all lawlessness, to purify them, to make them zealous for good works, all through Jesus Christ, so that they will look like him, so that they will be one in him. Paul understood that, and so he ministered Christ. He proclaimed Christ everyone, knowing that you would make your mission come to pass. Jesus, you promised us this, that you would build your church, and the gates of hell, they won't prevail against it. And so here we are now, Lord, as soldiers on a mission, in enemy territory, 
The ruler of this world hates us. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. God, I pray that we will not first seek to live out our own mission and just ignore yours. Or secondly, Lord, that we won't seek to fulfill your mission in our own strength. We're prone to both. We're prone to selfishness and pride and just wanting to, to live our lives for ourselves or live our lives in our own power. Lord, we desperately need your spirit to break us of that, to convict us of that sin deeply so that we will come humbly before you seeking your help in all things. Lord, I pray that you will make us faithful ministers of yours, that we will begin through these four messages, Lord, to stop seeing our lives as our own, that we will understand that if one died for all, then all are dead, and that we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who gave himself for us. Help us, Lord, to begin to get a glimpse of what that's going to mean in day-to-day -day life. And I pray, Lord, that in every circumstance or relationship that we, we are involved in, that we will see those things through the lens of what you are doing in this world. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the ability to just come now and pray to you, knowing for certain that you hear it, knowing for certain that you have promised that if we ask anything according to your will, that you will do it. Lord, we know it's your will to make us like Jesus. And so we ask you to do that in us now. In Jesus' name.